Welcome to the Build My Online Store podcast, where we discuss everything and anything about running an online store. If you like the podcast, sign up for the mailing list to get news and updates at buildmyonlinestore.com. And now, here's your host, Terry Lynn. Welcome to episode 26 of the Build My Online Store podcast. I'm your host, Cherry, And in this week's episode, we're going to take a break from e-commerce. As the year wraps up, we're going to focus a little bit on mindset. And while it's great to hear stories and actionable advice from business owners out there, it's also important to touch about the mindset aspect of starting your own online store. And so this episode was inspired by Seth Godin, and he's got some of the best business books out there that you can read as an entrepreneur. And earlier in the year, he released a podcast called Startup School, which is a recording of a live workshop he did with a group of entrepreneurs earlier in the year. And so in episode 10 called Tactics, there was a segment on how uh, you need to architect your story so that people who don't know you, the way you know you, will get the point. And he gives the analogy of it being like a stand-up comedian. And so here's the clip that I'm referring to. This isn't about whether it's worthy it's about how do you architect it so that people who don't know you the way you know you will get the point. Stand-up comedy is the perfect storm of all of this. You're a stranger, the audience doesn't really know you, you have four minutes, 12 minutes, whatever, to make them laugh or fail. And then you have to do it again tomorrow. And when you hear what's going on inside of these stand-up comments, it's exactly what's going on inside of each one of you. But then you see some comics figure out how to get through to people, right? There's a hundred comics who are as funny as Jerry Seinfeld, but only Jerry Seinfeld is a billionaire comic. And only Jerry Seinfeld has put all these words into our vocabulary, blah, 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 because he figured out how to market and bring to market the thing. Whereas the other guy is still playing at you know, some Hotel Six in the middle of nowhere. That is the, the fork in the road. So if I keep coming back to shipping it and interacting with the marketplace and figuring out it's because you get that part right everything else takes care of itself so we're going to talk a little bit about business so today we're going to go deeper into what Seth just said and we're going to speak with a stand-up comedian who is also a listener of the show and entrepreneur in his own right, uh, Jamar Johnson. So, Jamar, what's going on, man? Yo, what up, Terry? Yo, doing good, man. Let's just jump right into this. So, for our audience who might not know who you are, can you just give us a quick background about yourself and how'd you get into comedy? So, let's say a little bit about me. Uh, I'm really originally from New York City. I left New York City when I was 18 in order to join the Marine Corps. Uh, in order to get money for college, travel a little bit up until that point, I'd never really been out of the, the New York City area except for like maybe Hershey Park. I joined the military right out of high school as well as signed up for a military scholarship. After about uh, a year in the Marine Corps, my scholarship got approved. I went to college in Auburn, Alabama of all places because I was stationed in Pensacola, Florida. And at the time, our scholarship was for UC Berkeley, which is in California. But I thought that that would be too far from home. And you know, being a broke college student, I, I realized that I really wouldn't get home very much. So I quickly uh, changed plans and went to a school closer uh, to where I was stationed in Alabama. Did four and a half years there and um, basically uh, became a naval officer upon graduation, went to Japan for 27 months, 
and uh, traveled to a whole bunch of places. And uh, it was kind of there that I actually started and kind of falling in love with comedy first year in the Navy. Uh, and then I've just been since essentially writing and, and performing ever since that point in order to get to, to the point where I'm at now, which is not a very fun comedy business. <laughs> so you kind of did it while you were in the Navy as a part-time, just building your 10,000 hours, right? Exactly. I did it I did it in the Navy. Uh, so let me tell you the story of how I even got started. So I was living in Japan, and I came to Rhode Island to do a one-month course in surface warfare training. I was up in Rhode Island, Newport, Rhode Island. I wanted to do all the things that I couldn't do in Japan. You know, Japan doesn't have comedy clubs or anything like that. So I, I bought tickets to go see Charlie Murphy at the local improv, um, which was in Boston. And it was about an hour and 20 minute drive from where I was stationed. There was a big snowstorm. It was December of 2005. A lot of people were like, hey, man, don't, don't try to drive up through that snow. It's dangerous. You know, the military have something called ORM, Operational Risk Management. And you, you use that to assess whether or not you should go through with something. All the risk factors were like, it's, it's too bad to go. But I was determined. I was like, look, I bought these tickets. They're not refundable. And uh, you only live once, you know. I was, I, was on, I was saying YOLO before it was even popular. You know, you only live. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I drove up through the snow. And there were cars turned over left and right. Cars off on the side of the road. There was a lot of accidents. People stranded. And I just kept going, just leaving all of the people stranded by. I was like, look, I got a show to get to. Sure enough, I make it to the show. And it was, I had the time of my life. Maybe 300 people packed um, arm to arm like sardines in a, in a comedy club. I think they probably oversold the tickets, you know, and just stuffed as many people as they could in there. And this was at the height of the of the uh, the Dave Chappelle show. The, the people were excited to see Charlie Murphy live and hear his stories live. And uh, I saw another comedian named Kyle Grooms, who's a very funny guy, who was actually on Last Comic Standing as well. But anyway, I just had the time of my life, and somehow, some way, the little inkling of being a comedian was implanted in my mind at that point. And also keep in mind that I had just recently finished reading the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, so I was already in the mindset of being an entrepreneur. And I had always wanted to be one my whole life, but being an entrepreneur over being an employee and I had just learned the difference between an employee versus self-employed versus business owner versus investor. My mind was pretty much dead set on being a comedian from that point forward, December 2005. Awesome. Love Kiyosaki too, but that's a topic for another day. So so that ties me into the next kind of thing I want to go over is why I got you on the show. And so I was listening to Seth Godin's podcast. Uh, he was saying, you know, stand-up comedian and being in stand-up comedy is a lot like entrepreneurship, right? You put yourself out there, uh, you got to find your audience, and you got to impress them in four to 12 minutes. Otherwise, you're done, right? And the thing is, with the online store or online business, you know, if you don't do that, they just click somewhere else. So the dynamics is very different. And so I think mindset, there's a lot of stuff that's similar. And so that's why I want to get you on to see, you know, what's it like to be out there really, you know, hustling every day, you know, working in clubs and all that stuff. So... So, you know, just before we start, you know, how does the whole industry work with stand-up comedy and like getting gigs and all that kind of stuff? Okay. Yeah, well, I'll try to summarize it as best I can because, you know, it's it's one of those things where there are so many different possible outcomes. You know, one of my favorite games is chess. Chess has about uh, 122 to the 80 second power moves. Uh, because of the board and the, the pieces. And so that's just like a really super infinite amount of moves. They say there are more chess moves available than they are uh, stars in the whole entire uh, universe. But comedy and being a comedian is almost like the same thing. There's no real farm system like there is in, like the med in Major League Baseball or, ba you know, basketball with the D-League. There's no way to go about it. It's kind of like 
you know, you got to find an open mic. Then you go to an open mic and you get past your fear of performing or whatever, whatever issues you might have. And then you have to develop, you know, a couple of minutes. And after you get those minutes, you can take yourself to a club and they'll allow you to showcase for them if you bring them a certain number of people to come watch you, essentially a certain number of paying customers. And then after you get on there and you perform, there's a couple of ways that it can go from there. Because let's say you do well, they might want you back, but they also know, hey, this person is willing to bring some people to come see him perform. So rather than make him part of my paying staff, I just have him keep coming back every every so often with his paying customers. And he's basically helping me keep my place open without me having to even pay him. And so the club owners want people to just buy drinks when they go with you to watch you. Absolutely. That's where the markup is in, in the comedy business. Unfortunately, the comedy business is heavily tied into the alcohol business, you know, because you can charge someone uh, $7 for a drink that probably only costs 70 cents to pour. A lot of places even give away free tickets just to get people to come to the show because they know they're going to get them on the drink. Now, obviously, bar shows are a whole different story. Um, and that's where a lot of comedians are going to, you know, really grit their teeth and really develop some of their material is doing some of these alternative room shows. Because they can get a little bit more time. There's no pressure. There's no club owner, you know, demanding that they're hilarious or they get kicked out type of thing. So how do you create the content for the show when you don't know if it's going to work? Because well, I guess one thing is you have to be really observant, right, when you're creating your content. Absolutely. I mean, it's like anything, you know, the way, you know, you talked about, you know, comedy is like being an entrepreneur. It, it absolutely is, 100%. You are essentially a contractor that is trying to, you know, get his services put up for display in different locations. So developing the material is, that's the essence of your product. Your material can be put on bumper stickers, it can be put on t-shirts. Like, if you have really good material, there are ways that you can make money around it. You know, there are a lot of comedians who sell not only their, their download, their digital download, like Louis C.K., you know, he sells his digital download for $5 now. So guess what? That brings the price of everybody else is because he's one of the best comedians so every other comedian has to follow suit and have hit have his at five dollars as well because why would someone pay ten dollars for yours when they can get louis ck's for five but uh going back to the material creation and generation that's where the open mic comes in you have to go to a place where you can just rattle off jokes and see what works and see what doesn't work uh, work on your persona, work on your delivery. How you say a joke can be just as important as the structure of the joke. And if you write stuff from your own perspective, then no one else can steal it because how they would say it would come off a different way. You know, someone who's short and ugly can use a certain joke that someone who's tall and handsome couldn't use based on the specifics of how it's structured around the image that they paint in someone's mind. So it's, it's very personal. Uh, and years ago, like maybe 30, 40 years ago, people used to share material. It was jokes were kind of like, hey, everybody had this like a big pool of jokes and everybody shares it. Hey, I'm going up after you. So don't use this joke. Don't use that joke. And then it shared it. You know what I mean? But nowadays it's very, very personal. And that's why there's a big thing in the industry about stealing material. And so now me, this I have a lot of friends who are already national headliners. Um, and these people, you know, they get to do an hour every night, maybe three to four, maybe even five nights a week. So while they're doing these long sets at, cl at paying uh, gigs, paid gigs, they have audience members that are unsuspecting of when they're going to slip in new material. So that's when they slip in their new material and practice their material on the fly without you detecting it. But for people like me who are not as established in like, for example, the New York market, you know, I have to go to open mics or when I go to the bar shows, which is paid gigs, you know, not as much. Or if I do any kind of charity shows, I have to slip in new material 
during those shows in order to develop and see how big the laugh is. You have to record your sets, either video or audio, and listen back, listen for the laughs, listen to the reaction, and kind of adjust on the fly. And a lot of it is there's no magic bullet to finding the best funny material for yourself. You have to do trial and error. You know, because my one of the biggest lessons I learned was in my first month of doing comedy, I, I took a new joke to a uh, the sound the sound guy at the club that I was working. And he's he had been doing sound for comedy for 20 years. So I figured, oh, his opinion would really matter. So I went to him and told, I told him this joke that I wrote the night before. And he's like, ah, I don't know if that's going to work. And he kind of was really down on the joke. But I, I knew it because I wrote it and I was like, this is funny to me. And I think this is hilarious. So I do the joke and it kills. I get up to the stage. He goes, yeah, I guess you were right. So that taught me a lesson. If you practice your joke on one person, they could steer you wrong of whether it's, if they say it's funny or it's not funny. So it doesn't even matter what one person thinks. All that matters is what you think about the joke. And if you like it, then tell it and tell it with that tell it with that passion. It's just like if you're selling a product, you know. If you're selling a product, if you go up there and you go, hey, yeah, this is my new product for the iPhone and it kind of, it does this and it does. But if you go up there like, hey, I've got a new product for the iPhone. It does a million things. Check it out. It does it. And you, and you, and you rattle the things off with a certain level of excitement. People are going to want to buy that product. Yeah, people see the passion. And I think the parallel is that, you know, with any business you're starting, you know, it's about finding the right value proposition with your customer. Absolutely. It's having that it's having that interaction where you keep tweaking it and tweaking it. You kind of make pivots here and there until it's actually something that people like. And that's when, you know, when it hits. And so, you know, when you have a joke that hits, what's that feeling like on stage? That feeling, uh, I've never done heroin, but if I did, it probably would feel like that. It's like, <laughs> it's like bliss. It's like ecstasy. No, it really is. Especially the, one of the best feelings is when you write a joke and you've never told it before anywhere and you tell it and it, it's a huge reaction on stage for the very, very first time. When people laugh, it's usually involuntary. They don't control. Like they're not sitting there like, okay, I'm going to laugh at that. It's, it, they can't control it. It's like, oh my God, I just, can you believe that? Can you believe what he just said? So there's a, there's a, it's, there is some type of magic that transpires when you kill with material, especially for the first time. And a lot of times, you know, when you travel, like I've performed uh, in the West Coast, I've performed in California, New York, I've performed in Rhode Island, I've performed in Canada, I've performed in Florida, I've performed in Texas, I've performed in a lot of different places. So every time you go someplace new, you know, you get that new feeling with that old material. I see. And so, you know, on the flip side, when you have content that doesn't work, uh, how do you deal with that? Um, well, I, I'll tell you this, because one of the things about comedy is that I don't think a lot of people realize that there are, it's, it's one of those things that you need. You need a perfect environment in order to have a really, really great experience. And what I mean by that is some clubs are going to be better than others. The acoustics and the table seating and, you know, where the waitress is constantly walking in front of and how's the lighting and how's the sound. If you are performing at a bar, you have to kind of change your expectations for, you know, what you're going to get out of that show. Uh, when you perform at a club where everything is perfect lighting, like when I perform at Caroline's on Broadway in New York City, you know, that club was designed for a comedy. The stage is well lit. The backdrop is perfect. The, 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 the sound is great. The audience has a perfect view no matter where they're sitting. There's a lot of things that, that coincide with that. You know, when you're performing uh, for 20 people, uh, you know, in the back of a, uh, of a community center, you know, it's just it's going to be a different vibe. You can still make magic, but it's just a little bit harder because it's all about minimizing the distractions. If people can't really hear the show 
and they're sitting way, way, way back, they have a tendency to want to talk and converse. So that can affect your your ability of your material to connect with those audience members. So you, there's a lot of things that have to kind of go, have to be right. Lighting is important. The sound system is important. Can everybody see you? Can they see your facial expressions? If you know, people are, if the seating is too far and too far spread apart, then the laughs are going to disperse quickly. And it's, and it's going to feel like a, people laugh for two seconds and, okay, where's the next joke? But if they're sitting closer together, then people kind of rub off on each other and the laughter kind of... Like the energy bounces off back and forth? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Energy sells back and forth. So there is, there is a, a kind of, I like to say, there's a, some kind of uh, trance uh, take, that takes place. It's almost too, if you think of like a big dance club where it's packed to the brim, and, and it's just a really good night. Everybody's is feeling everybody's energy and it's it's contained. And now it would be a different story if the club was the size of a football field and everybody had 10 yards around them. It would be a different experience. Yeah, exactly. And it's almost like, you know, when you're starting a business, the way you deliver it and the environment you're delivering it in, right? Absolutely. You draw the parallel. Absolutely. You have to. But, you know, there are some comedians who believe that you, you just do what you do no matter where, you, where you're at. But I'm one of those people who believe that you have to really adjust your delivery and also your language uh, and your content has to, has to adjust for the place and time. Like I, I get booked to do a lot of private parties, you know, at people's houses for like, you know, a birthday party or like a high school graduation party. And, you know, you have to ask and inquire, you know, what are the age group of the people coming? You know, what type of material, what type of language would you like? And you have to get all that information and sometimes they still can mislead you so you show up and you've prepared one thing you got to be able to to go on the fly i did a party uh i have this standing engagement every fourth of july in rhode island with this guy but when i go to his house he told me oh don't worry about it it's going to be uh mostly uh high schoolers and adults so feel free everything no holds bar i show up there and there are at least 12 kids that are below the age of 12 <laughs> you know what i mean so then i had to use i gotta get i gotta use my bill cosby skills and i've gotta you know use that kid say the darndest things and say kids let me ask you a question what do you you know and i have to kind of just play around with them and be playful and be very improvisational and take their answers and dance around and really milk the the crowd and i did i ended up doing an hour show of just basically improv with a few books here and there because most of my material that i prepared wasn't really you know kid friendly that's the thing that a lot of marketers say you know you have to tailor your message to your yes. ideal customer persona right? yeah. which is exactly what you're talking about yeah right I, th- th- there's a phrase that i heard recently that i think really uh, pertains to just everything business comedy it's like don't feel like you're talking to a million people you know have your message for one person a million times and so and so let's go into deeper that when you design your content are you designing as if you're talking to one person or what's your process of- yeah you know it's funny when i if i look back in the past you know you write your material as if you're designing it for an audience um because with, with comedy it tends to be more of a shotgun approach like you you want to stand up on the stage and shoot something out like a shotgun knowing that you're not going to hit the entire audience but you're going to get a large percentage and that's where the laugh's going to come from but what i feel that if you write like you write like you're talking to one person then there's going to be a deeper connection in what you're saying. You're not going to just skip details, but see, because that's what's really funny is when a person uses details to really help paint the picture. So I think if you write as if you're talking to one person and you really take your time to tell the story, you're going to create a detailed picture in each individual mind as a group. You know, being a good communicator is getting everybody to see the same thing. You can't do it by, be, by using broad strokes. 
use it by using a fine fine strokes and each individual mind is going to piece it together and then form that thing and that's when you get the really really big laugh where everybody is on point and, and what happens is if you tell a joke and there are some people who don't get it until three seconds later that means the joke works but there's a chasm between the setup and the punchline the chasm is, is almost too wide where some people aren't really catching the message until too late. It's, it's fascinating because, you know, you see a lot of companies with their websites, you know, their businesses, they're, they're writing as if they're spinning to everyone. But when you're online, it's each person visiting a website actually just like comedy, right? Yeah, they are. It's one of those things where I've heard this a couple of years ago and I, I didn't really believe it. But if you work on uh, a niche, a niche in, in comedy, then there's a whole market of people you can go to. Like I have a friend named Orlando Baxter who's really, really funny. He opens for Joe Coy, who's a naturally touring headlining comedian uh, who's on Chelsea Handler pretty much every week. He's the Asian guy. And he, uh, he's hilarious. I've seen him in person. He's, he can do 90 minutes of just improv. He's that good. But Orlando Baxter is a teacher and he has a lot of material about what it's like to teach kids and what it's like to teach special education and things like that. Well, if he takes that niche and he focuses it like a laser and says, okay, I'm going to write an hour of teaching material. See, now he has a targeted market that he can go out to and, and he can market himself to rather than going to a club. You see, because a club, think about this. Most comedians are em employee-minded people. And what I mean by that is they think to themselves, well, I want to be a comedian, so I need a job, right? And since comedy isn't a nine to five, they go to a club and the club says, all right, we'll try you out. And if they like you, they'll use you every so often, right? It's not steady enough. See, but if you look at comedy like a business person, like an entrepreneur and say, okay, I'm a comedian. Uh, my target market is teachers. There are schools in every city all across America. So all you have to do is take your targeted product and say my hours worth of teaching of teacher material that it's funny and you go to teachers and say hey I want to do a workshop with some of your teachers it's a human-based workshop and at the end I've got to attach some things that I've that helped me over the years become a more effective teacher and you give them a price then now you're going around and you're booking shows on a more regular basis and you're not even needing needing the club uh, in order to do so yeah and you're building portfolio expertise with a specific market where you can say hey i've done it at these 10 schools you know by the way here's my record you can ask them for a reference and you absolutely. can end up charging more too absolutely i mean it's your, your experience is going to get more your vision for which which you can how you can train is only going to get better and and uh, to me i was telling orlando that that's that's a market you and he's trying to work on his product but i think a lot of comedians struggle with the marketing aspect how do they take their niche and really focus it and drive it home yeah but i think like all you know entrepreneurial stuff it's a big mindset shift to think about that from a job to like a business right oh it is it is absolutely and fortunately fortunately for me i've been in that mindset since uh since like 2005 i've been thinking you know like kind of more like a like an entrepreneur yeah exactly and it's at some point that switch hits for everyone but i guess different people hit at mm -hmm. hit it at different times and so uh, one of the things about comedy is you really have to find your own voice too right yeah finding your own voice is critical um because then people are going to feel like they're talking the, the real you is on stage and not a fake persona the days you see comedy has shifted a lot over the years whereas before you could have this persona like okay i am I'm the cheap guy, 
or I'm the mean guy or I'm the lover guy. Like you had to have like a specific character about yourself that you presented. Nowadays, everybody knows that every, that we're all completely complex and complicated at times. So the real you is very important. So finding your voice, which means it really comes down to talking about things that really, really interest you. Not just talking about things that you've heard other comedians talk about or talking about things that you think the audience might be interested in. Like just what are your passions? You know, and, and unfortunately, if your passions are in areas that aren't very profitable, like, for example, people, if people want to hear politic uh, jokes, uh, political jokes, they go to Comedy Central, they watch Colbert Report, they watch Jon Stewart, or they go to HBO and they watch Bill Maher. The, that market is pretty much taken. You know, they're not going to go out on a Friday night to go watch some political comedy. <laughs> yeah. those, you know, those days are over. But now you could probably go to an open mic, like a poetry open mic, and hear somebody, you know, spitting some really good, profound political commentary. But for comedy-wise, Colbert Report and John Stewart come on every single night, five days a week. So that's pretty much, you know, taking that area and drowning it out. So you have to look at another niche that you might really like and talk about that and find your market. And that's what's really happening in the podcast area. There are so many comedy podcasts that people gravitate towards what they like, you know, what they're interested in. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing about finding your voice is that, you know, it helps you stand out. Otherwise, you just blend into you know, kind of like a crowd and no one remembers you once you leave the stage. And I think, too, uh, you know, to me, when I looked at getting into comedy before that, I'd always wanted to be a public speaker anyway. When I was 18, I spoke the Waldorf Astoria Hotel on behalf of an organization called Facing History and Ourselves. And uh, this organization was a uh, educational service add-on to schools in order to teach the importance of education to avoid what happened in Nazi Germany. Um, so this was a pretty big thing. I got to meet the head of the United Nations, Kofi Annan at the time, uh, school chancellor, and there were maybe 2,000 people that were there for this fundraising event. So that was like my first taste. Uh, I did five, I did I had a five-minute speech that I memorized and, and performed, and it was just a great feeling on stage. But, you know, when you talk about finding your voice, I always knew that if I did do comedy – that I have to have, you know, some positive messages in there and some things that that I believe in that helped me kind of get to where I get to where I am in life as far as just overcoming the obstacles of, you know, growing up in a rough environment, poor neighborhood, single parent, all of the things that people say make it difficult in life to achieve. I wanted to make sure that I could reach and touch other kids out there who kind of came from where I came from. You know, I've got my master's degree. You know, I would have never uh, thought that because most of the people that grew up with me don't even have their college degree, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think it's important to have a positive message because you have, like, I've seen these kind of brand of comedians where they're like the complaining persona. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, that's that's kind of fun at first, but it gets really old because it's almost like it's always negative and you're like, oh, okay, you know. Yeah, it does. I, you know, and I think uh, most people, like, everybody complains about things. When you're a comedian, do you really want your lasting memory to be just complaining? Like, how about have a solution? You just nail it on the head. There's a real market for positive comedy and and i think that there are some people out there who are doing it and uh there's a guy's uh, his name is michael jr actually who d goes around and he does it his niche market is the, the christian comedy he kind of keeps his sets completely clean uh very hilarious but there's a huge market out there because there's not that many 
uh, people that I can name besides him who are big in the Christian comedy circuit. So I would imagine that there's a huge market for that that type of material. Uh, you know, into another topic here. One of the things with entrepreneurship and comedy is, uh, you know, dealing with haters, right? And so, you know, when you have an online store, a hater could just go somewhere else. They don't have to buy from you. But when you're on stage and say you have like a heckler, like how do you handle that emotionally? Every person ha- has a different way of handling it emotionally based on, you know, what is their underlying feelings about themselves, I think. You know, if you grew up and you were bullied a lot and you never really felt confident, then a hater can really get under your skin and it, it's really like, that's your time to like lash lash out, lash back. Fortunately for me, you know, I had haters growing up and bullies growing up, but uh, luckily I couldn't resist saying what I really felt to them. So I always dealt with it head on and whatever the consequences were the consequences. As I've gotten older, I've learned how to be tactful. And I think being tactful means that you want to be able to tear someone down without making it completely obvious so that everybody else can laugh and then them really not understand why they're being laughed at. That's like the best technique I would say is because you don't want to become angry. You want to remain calm up there. You know, overall, the audience is going to get your back as long as the guy, but you know, as long as the guy is staying in his seat and he's just yelling whatever he's yelling, then you have to take a moment to engage and then you have to use your, you know, your dancing skills, kind of make him look foolish and let him know that, hey, I'm the professional up here. Uh, I have a whole bunch of incidences of this, but, uh, you know, you can really deal with it within, you know, a minute and uh, go back to doing your show. But some guys, they really harp on it and they get upset and then they get angry and it takes them away from you know, where they are, where they had the audience going and get really, really upset. So I think that's a bad idea to stay calm and uh, just address the guy calmly and uh, give him enough rope to hang himself is what I was was what I was taught by some great comedians, uh, a guy named Joe Klosek, actually, who I worked with in San Francisco. I took actually his course. I took a course called uh, Improv for Stand Up Comedy. And he talks about just basically asking questions. Like when someone wants to heckle, usually it's because either they're drunk, they're not having a good time, or they just want a little bit of attention. So give them a little bit of attention by asking them questions. And when you ask them questions, you'll be able to paint a picture uh, that you can basically present back to the audience. And once the audience laughs at that person, usually they, they shut up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny you see this on what a lot of bloggers say, you know, when people you know, are angry on their blogs and they just deal with it head on and, you, and, and then they turn around and they become nice. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things, too, where, like, a person who heckles, when you get the audience to laugh at them, they actually come back and, and like, want to buy you a drink at the end of the show. Because they realize they've been a douchebag, right? Yeah, they realize they were a douche, and they're really happy, and they realize that they were out of line, but that at least you didn't, you know, you didn't drag them through the mud. You just, you just made, you know, slight fun of them, tactically, tactful. And then you yeah, and whereas you know, if you just lash out at him, he'd go back on Facebook and say, "Yeah, never go see this guy. He's terrible." And yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And you know, and you have to look at it like, I mean, especially when you become a touring comedian, you have to make everybody happy in a way. You know, you have to because you want to have re, you want to have return customers. So you want two people to leave and tell two other people. You know, you don't want to have one person leaving and telling ten people, "Hey, this guy sucked." So that's why you, rather than just getting angry and upset and yelling obscenities at a guy, you want to ask, you want to find out what's going on. How was your day, man? You sound like you had a bad day. Yeah, you know, and a lot of the people online say, you know, these guys can become your biggest fans once, you know, you kind of go through this process. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's very cathartic to, you know, like I said, they, maybe they just want a little bit of attention. Uh, actually, it's funny. One of my biggest hecklers one time was my former high school basketball coach who, uh, 
he showed up to, to one of my shows in the Lower East Side with, with a friend of his, and they were both already pre-hammered. That's usually a sign uh, that you're going to have to watch out for hecklers. They were pre-hammered from out from drinking before they came. His friend yelled out, Say something about Charlie, man! <laughs> and nobody else knows who the hell Charlie is. And it really threw me off. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> and then I, that's all I said. And everybody kind of chuckled. And I just moved on with the show because I didn't have, there's no comeback for that. Somebody yelling something like that, you know, this is out of context. It ruined the vibe of your whole set. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I told him uh, to stuff a sock in it or something like that. I think I said, hey, stuff a sock in it and then just kept trying to keep going. Just wanted him to not yell. And I think Charlie grabbed him and was like, all right, stop. You're too drunk. Relax. But it, there was really nothing to get into because you really can't have any kind of intelligent conversation with someone who's drunk, you know? Their answers are going to be all over the place. So it just doesn't make sense to try to even converse, you know? Usually the heckler you want to try to go into is someone who thinks that they're, they're funnier than you. So they try to yell something out for a laugh. Yeah. Those are the ones you want to try to nip in the butt. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. All right. And so, um, you know, when you were first starting out very, very early on, um, you know, were you ever scared that, you know, gosh, my material is just going to completely fall flat? Or um, No, I, I, don't, I don't think I was ever scared that material would fall flat. I was just, when I first started early on, I was nervous that I just wouldn't remember, you know, all of the things that I wanted to say. You, you really have this weird idea of how much five minutes is or how much the first time I performed I did a, a 12 minute set so that feels like an eternity and uh, talk about dry cotton mouth you know you you would get really nervous because you're just worried about remembering everything that you had planned that's the worst thing is to be up there and go blank I thought the material was funny it's funny one of my one of my first lines was uh hey guys uh my uh I just want to warn you right up before we start that there's a really good chance that I may not be as funny as I think I am. <laughs> In which case, if you get the urge to throw uh, a shoe up here, please don't. Because that was like when when George Bush had the shoes thrown out of Iraq. I was like, please don't. But if you if you do insist on throwing the shoes, I wear a size 12, and I prefer Nike or Timberland. <laughs> so like that was one of my first jokes, you know, because it's like acknowledging the fact that hey, I, there's a chance I could suck because I think I'm funny, but. Who knows? And then you know you gotta laugh, and it worked. Yeah, and it's and it's it's honest too. Right? Yeah, it's honest. Yeah, and I think that's the thing about what I learned from the things that I've read. I read a lot of books before I even performed, and they were just like you know, just try to be as honest as you can because the more you you create, you just make it harder for yourself to be believable. Yeah, and I find that the really good comedians are honest, and that their jokes are very relatable too. Absolutely. Honest and relatable. Those are probably the two biggest things that you can do when you're writing jokes. You just, you know, if you're writing jokes about women in burkas, you know, there's only so many jokes people can hear about those before they're like, yeah, we can't really relate to that. And, and so what's the process of creating content like that for you? Um, I have a couple different ways. Uh, I like to, of course, talk about my life. So if something happens to me, I, I like journal all day, every day. I'm always journaling. Uh, wherever I go, I'm writing on my iPhone. And I'm writing down notes about things that happen. You believe this happened, believe that happened. But then I also like to do this thing where I read news stories and I dissect them and just interject my opinions into them. You know, news stories and just the, the world around you, to me, that's like the easiest way to just mine for material because there's always something really ridiculous that's always happening around the world. If I don't feel the creative urge to create uh, or to write something f that happened to me, 
then I'll just simply go and find something online. And I actually have uh, a couple of subscriptions that I've created in my Google Reader. That I'm subscribed to like some things called Oddly Enough Reuters or Offbeat News or things like that. So I can click on those and just scroll down and find a story that's just like just is like off the chain. It's just crazy to have a starting base. And it can come off as very timely too, right? When you deliver it. Yes, and some of that, yeah, some of that material is material that you that is time sensitive. So you might only be able to use it for like a you know that let's say you create five minutes of time sensitive material, you might only be able to use it for a week or a month. Uh, but it, what it does is it exercises your brain because ultimately one of the things that a lot of comedians look for is a steady writing job. You know, writing for one of the big time shows or writing for a TV show or a sitcom. So you have to get in the habit of writing and practicing writing jokes on a regular basis. And if somebody wants you to for a private gig, then you can get some material, go to their website and quickly write some jokes about their products and services so that you can, when you go to their, to their convention or whatever, you can really have some um, personal material that will connect to them. You have to really be creative when it comes to finding work. Um, there's a lot of different avenues you can go. All right, there's the club. There's the college circuit. There's the cruise circuit. There's also the senior citizens home circuit, which a lot of people don't know about. But it's one of those things where uh, when I was in college, excuse me, I worked at a, uh, a assisted living facility. You'd be surprised how little entertainment these old people really get on a regular basis. Uh, so I know people now who go and they sing for these people and they do some I do. I've done some comedy for these people in the past. So that's a pretty good circuit, too, where, you know, you're not getting thousands of dollars, but you can probably organize it where you're making, you know, from one senior citizen home, you can probably make 500 bucks uh, in, a, in a visit. Uh, and you just you do an hour show and then you mingle and you talk to them and, you know, then maybe you host their bingo afterwards and. You know, you collect your check and you had a good day and you helped some old people get some laughter in the world. Yeah, it's all, all about the hustle, right? Yeah, you've got you've to hustle. You've got to network constantly. The biggest way you can work as a comedian is about other comedians um, booking you on their shows. Like last night I had a show, uh, a comedian books, and tonight I have a show in Brooklyn that another comedian books. You know, all these paid gigs that you, as you get out there and ming meet and mingle, you know, people keep you in mind for their ongoing productions. Yeah, it's a lot like the online world, too, where you have people that guest blog on other people's blog, and you really, that's really how you grow exponentially. Absolutely. With, with your audience, too. Interesting. And so, and so going back to the um, assisted living the crowd, so I guess, you know, they're really old, so how do you get material to work for them? Well, uh, the, one of the things that, uh, I don't want to give away all my secrets here, but one of the things you do is... Uh, you have to find out, you know, the things were around when they were in their formative years, you know. So you go back, you just kind of go back, you do a little bit of research on their era. You know, what were the TV shows? Remember, it's not going to be that many. There was only three channels back then, you know. So you find out what was on TV. You find out what was what music was being played. One of my strong suits is I love music, and so I, I love to dissect songs. So I dissect music and I break down what these lyrics could have meant. I can do impressions of different singers, do a little Elvis. I have a, a really strong Barack Obama impression. So I could always kind of go and do and spend a, a good t amount of time uh, on material that's impression based. Can we get a quick uh, spiel of your Barack Obama impression? This is, uh, this is my impression of Barack Obama singing. <laughs> <laughs> America, uh, I believe I can fly. <laughs> uh, I believe... I can touch the sky. I think about it every night and day. 
<laughs> I spread my wings and I fly away. Now, uh, I also listen to a little bit of hip-hop music. Uh, so from time to time, uh, Michelle and I are uh, in the Oval Office listening uh, to some Little John. And it'll go, uh, from the windows to the walls. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. You can check out my website, iamjamar.com. And so, and so just to wrap up, you know, what advice do you have for, you know, the entrepreneurs that are just trying to get started, but they can't get over this fear of, you know, putting themselves out there or starting their business? Yeah, well, I would say one of the biggest things you have to remember is that no matter what business you're in, your ultimate product is you're selling yourself. So you have got to get sure about how you feel about yourself and your thoughts about yourself and your abilities and what you can accomplish so that you can just step out there. Because I don't get nervous at all when I perform on stage because I know that there's only two ways it can go, either good or bad. But I know that I feel like I'm a likable person, I'm an honest person, and I come from a good place uh, with my service, which is at the time you know, sharing laughter. Um, so I think that once you feel like the product you're selling and, and you are coming to the table correctly, then there's nothing to fear. And then you have to understand that it ultimately is a numbers game. And if you meet enough people, if you shake enough hands, if you kiss enough babies, um, then you're going to find the audience for your product, whether it be, you know, comedy or whether it be some some kind of, you know, thing you created, some kind of invention. So you have to get it in front of people. Just be bold. You know, most people kind of just live their life and they, they just kind of walk around and, you know, they kind of mind their own business and they don't ever stand out. When you're bold, it just is very easy to stand out. And little things like uh, I have a line that I use to, to as a pickup line that I created to pick up women. But really, all it is, when you hear the line, you're going to see it's not anything cheesy. It's a straight up question. And it, what it is is I go, excuse me, miss. Miss, yes. Excuse me, can you tell me how I can get to know you? <laughs> and it works every time. And either either they say, oh, that's sweet, but no, I have a boyfriend. Or they say, well, my name is Susan. And then you just go from there and you just start talking to each other. So what I would say is a person who is trying to sell their wares, you know, whether it be your, your, your products or services, you have to really get confident in talking to people. No matter what you're selling, you, people need to know about it. And, you know, even if it's online, I would say that I'm more likely to buy something from, from a business where, I, where there's a video of them talking to me about what they're offering. Because it's very personal. And you can see their sincerity. You can see their belief in their product. So I would say that, that above all else, getting comfortable talking to people. And when you talk to people, talk as if you're talking to one person. Uh, a million times, not a million people all at once. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And, and so just to wrap things up, you know, where can we find you online? I know you have a podcast yourself too. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I have a podcast. Uh, it's called Verbal Brainstorm. And, and uh, all it is, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a comedy podcast primarily. You know, there's definitely some inspirational things on there. I talk to comedians from all over. Um, also, I have some co-hosts that we just come on and we shoot the breeze. We talk about some latest and greatest news stories. You know, give our opinions on things. Just try to have a good time. Just try to be, you know, be company to those people who are at work at a job, but they can easily listen to their headphones. And that's on iTunes, and that's Verbal Brainstorm uh, by Jamar John Johnson. Uh, you can also find it on Podomatic, uh, imjamar.podomatic.com. Uh, my website is imjamar.com. That's Jamar with two R's. I'm also on Twitter at Jamar J. Uh, I'm on Instagram, same username, 
I'm all over the place. I'm trying to be connected on every social media realm, and I'm you know watching my numbers grow ever so ever so slightly every single day. Uh, just trying to put some good material out there. All right, man, Jamar, I think that's it. It's been super yes, fun. It's been a blast, Harry. Thanks for having me awesome, on. Awesome, man. All right. All right, man. You have a great one. You Peace. too, man. Later, dude. To get more information about running an online store, visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store Podcast.